Amen. Aaron has a, one of the most enviable and least enviable jobs out of all of us. Planning worship services is not easy. Everybody has an opinion on it, but they do such a good job, don't they? We're going to be reading from. Hello? Yeah. It's on? Okay. It's on. Uh, we're going to be reading from Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand. Double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, the word of our God will stand forever. Go up, on a high, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Thank you, Hamza. So I know at least Nathan, who didn't know we were going to read those verses, is sitting here going, we did those last week, didn't we? <laughs> Does he not know that we did those last week? I do. I really do know that we did those last week. Um, if you didn't realize we did those last week, I'm... Sorry, <laughs> pay attention better this week, maybe, I think. Uh, yeah, Nathan did such a good job walking us through those verses last week. But the, the thing with Isaiah chapter 40 is it's really one whole piece. You have to read it together. And so we're going to be talking about Isaiah chapter 40, 12 through 31 today. But, you know, if you jump in at Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So you have to start at part one in order to get to part two. And that's what we need to do this morning is remember where we are. Those verses that Hamza just read. We're reading words spoken to a people a long way from home, surrounded by a million voices, none of which sound like God's, under a mountain of difficulty, knowing they put themselves there, right? And now here comes Isaiah, the guy who has spent years just being a complete bummer to these people all the time, telling them they're going to end up here. Now here he comes. Okay, and the last person you want around when things go bad is the guy who told you things were going to go bad, right? You can, you can imagine exactly what they expect Isaiah to walk up and say. He's going to show up and he's going to be like, I told you so. Did I not tell you? Wasn't I saying this this whole time? And here you are. I knew this was going to happen. That's the last thing you want to hear in that situation, but it's what they expected and it's what they deserved. But to these rebellious and needy and stubborn, overly impressed with themselves, just honestly infuriating people, people a lot like us. God says to them, comfort, 
comfort my people. Now, maybe, maybe that was encouraging right off the bat, but I don't think it would take long for God's people to start looking around and looking at their situation. And they're going, look at the idols of Babylon here. They're looking around and they're looking at the threats pressing in. They're looking at the temptation to just make peace with exile and say, man, it's the lesser of two evils. I guess this is what we'll go with. They're looking around at the seeming absence of God or at least the ineptitude of God. And they're looking at all these things and going, comfort. Isaiah, don't, don't give me false hope. That's almost worse than gloating. Don't give me false hope. How is God going to meet us here? Can God really help us? Does God really want to? There's no reason for them to question God, question God, but that doesn't really matter. All they know is right now, things are not good. And they can't imagine that God would help them. And I mean, we, we know that kind of cynicism, guys, don't we? And it has a lot less to do with God and a lot more to do with us, right? We know what we're like. We know how we would react if we were in God's shoes. And we may not say it out loud, but most of us imagine God is pretty much like us, just a little bit bigger, right? So we imagine that God would react like we do in this situation and we wouldn't help. So we doubt him. Will God really meet us here with comfort? This world with all its pressures and pleasures, with all its goodness and its brokenness, with with all its impressiveness and all its you know, distractions can make God seem dimmer and feebler than he really is and can make the world seem bigger and fuller and more threatening than it really is. What we need is a bigger picture of God because our thoughts are too small. That was Judah. So, you know, can we level with one another this morning? I don't know about you, but it feels like we've kind of half-heartedly arisen out of our hibernation over the last year, and we're just kind of like hoping that we make it in every day. I most of the time feel like, you know, a slinky that's been stretched too far and it just doesn't, it doesn't want to go back anymore. Like, that's where I've been at for a lot of this time. A year and a half ago, I remember, do you remember this? We were talking about how this was going to be a great season of rest, and we were going to get back to the things that really matter. That was my heart at the time. And now, honestly, I don't, I don't know what I meant by that. I don't know what I expected. I don't know what really mattered that I wanted to get back to. I just know that I wanted a fix, a fix to this just, there's got to be more feeling, that this isn't how it should be feeling that we have. This life is awesome. It is a wonder, and we are grateful for it. But even on the best days that we have, there's still this sense in us, this longing for something more. There's a discontentment with the unsatisfaction that life offers. There's confusion at the seeming callous injustice our world offers. There's, there's this sense that, you know, we are just exasperated by the vitriol we see when we go out into the world. And we're thinking there has to be a better way. There has to be something more to this. I'm not saying anything you don't know, okay? Life is hard, and the world isn't how it's supposed to be. That's basic. That's elementary, all right? You don't even have to be a Christian to believe that. The question for us this morning is, when the pressure turns up and in, in that ache rises to an unignorable roar, is our God really the answer? 
Life has a way of making God seem small and feeble and questionable. It would be nice if we could throw everything we have on God. But if I can ask the question that I usually wonder, it's what if I do and it doesn't work out? What if I try to follow God and honestly I just end up looking like a failure? What if, what if I get tired of having to be different all the time and I'm thinking about the things I feel like I'm missing out on in life? What if I don't have what it takes to do this? Can God help me then? Will God help me then? These are the same questions exiled Judah was asking and what we need is the same thing they needed, which is this unexpected word from God. Comfort, comfort my people. We need the unexpected goodness of God the surprising gentleness of our Savior. We need to put this world and everything in it, including us, into perspective. We need bigger and correcter thoughts about God. So what we're gonna do this morning is really, really simple. We're gonna look at God. We're gonna look at God. That is what Isaiah 40 is. Isaiah 40 is God anticipating the flurry of doubtful questions as people are gonna have and saying to them, you just need to see me how I see me. You need to see me how I really am. So we're gonna look at God. Now I know, here's the deal. I know that for some of you, that's the last thing in the world you wanted to hear this morning, okay? Let's just be real. That sounds really boring. I get it, all right? I have fallen asleep in confession. I've fallen asleep in my fair share of theology lectures, okay? I have done it, I will do it again. I know it doesn't sound super exciting to say, hey, we're gonna just look at God today and see how good he is. We want the practical stuff. We want the me stuff. I wanna know what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to take from this and apply to my life? That's what we wanna do. Well, what Isaiah is saying is how far has that pragmatic me stuff ever gotten us? What if, what if there's a better way? Wouldn't you want to try it? So if you're like me and you hear somebody say, we're gonna talk about God and you go, oh no, this is gonna be a long morning. I'm asking you to humor me and try a different way with me this morning. So, Isaiah chapter 40, the passage we're gonna look at, starting in verse 12. Here's what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know, one of my most vivid memories from childhood is standing on the edge of Lake Michigan for the first time. And that lake is just massive. When, when I heard about Lake Michigan, I'm picturing Percy Priest, maybe a little bit smaller, probably a little bit cleaner, but smaller than Percy Priest. And you walk up and this thing just goes on for miles. You can't even see the end of it. I, you wouldn't know this, but I did some research on like stats because I thought it might help. It didn't me, but it might you. This is how big it is. The Lake Michigan is 0.5% of the size of the Atlantic Ocean. And the Atlantic Ocean is 29% of the world's water surface, not even half, okay? That means that Lake Michigan, if you're a numbers person, this will probably help you. Lake Michigan is only one thousandth of the world's water. That's 0.1%. 
And yet when I stand on the shore of that lake, I can't even see all the way to the other side, let alone, like, can you imagine if I said, I'm just going to pick up all the water in Lake Michigan today, and I just started reaching down, putting it in my hands. Can't do it. But Isaiah is saying that God weighed the waters of the world in the palm of his hand like you would a pinch of salt when you're baking. You go, I just need a little pinch. That's what God did with the water. He balanced out the mountains like play sand and figured out this is how tall this one needs to be. This is how low this valley needs to be. He took a tape measure and wrapped it around the earth and said, this is the sphere. This is marking off the sphere of the earth. And when the light catches it, we'll get the skyline. We'll get a horizon. We'll have an atmosphere. God did these things, these immeasurable things that sound massive to us. And he didn't need any help to do it. He didn't ask anyone for advice. Verses 13 and 14, again, they say, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Whom did he consult? I mean, can you imagine an all-powerful, all-wise God getting stuck in the middle of creation? Like he just gets creator's writer's block and he has to you know, trot up to some contractor and the contractor's like, oh, see, there's your problem, God. The fish go in the water, easy mistake to make. We'll see, and God's just like, oh, Jeez, you know what? You are so right. That should happen that way. How silly of me. That's absurd. It wouldn't happen. The, the commentators I read on this talked about how in Babylonian religion, the creator god Marduk had to consult the all-wise god Ea in order to create. So the creator god Marduk wasn't smart enough to create things. The wise god Ea wasn't strong enough to create things. They worked by committee. They had to get advice from one another and help from one another. God, our creator, doesn't need anyone else, including you and me. God is not consolidating a list of, you know, our great ideas so he can take credit later. He's not waiting for a review of his handiwork. He didn't need our approval when he made everything, and he really doesn't need now. You know, my pastor growing up, he used to say, we've, we've got this crazy idea in our heads that life gives us like a, a boardroom table in our minds. And when we want to make a decision, we go around the boardroom table. There's lots of voices on that boardroom table. We want everybody's advice. Jesus, of course, has the first spot. And we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, what should I do in this situation? Jesus gives his peace. He says, hey, you should turn the other cheek. We say, that's great, Jesus. Thank you for your advice. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I'd like to hear your thoughts now. We have this idea that God is on a committee with us around our boardroom table, offering us advice. I somehow have it lodged in my brain that it's, it's nice, it's nice to want to do things God's way. Consider others more important than yourself. Outdo one another in showing honor. Walk by faith, not by sight. Let's aim for that. But sometimes, sometimes here in the real world, I've got to make sure that things work out. I'll give Jesus the, you know, the first voice on my boardroom table, but I might need to supplement what he's got to really make it work here. Friends, I don't know anything more encouraging than this. Isaiah is saying to us, God is not out of touch with reality. God is not out of touch with reality. He isn't needing me to give him pointers on how things really work down here. He's not wondering. He's not confused. And thank goodness for that. My pointers would be terrible. God, God is reality. He defines it. 
That means following him is not just a nice thing to aim for, but also, you know, there's a little bit of risk involved in it. It actually means that following God is the only safe ground in all this world. He defines that reality. Isaiah says it like this, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So when you're washing your car and you get a bucket and you fill it up with water and you're doing like that half waddle back to your car to make sure you don't spill anything. And if you're walking and a little, a little droplet of water just ripples over the edge and falls to the ground, just one little droplet, do you go, that's it. I gotta go refill the whole thing. Let me just toss all this water out and go fill up the bucket again. No, right? When you're at the grocery store and you're, you're weighing your fruit on the little scale, do you make sure to dust off the dust because you're afraid it might add too much weight and it might change the cost, like it's gonna be really expensive now because the dust is on the scale? No, it doesn't matter. One little droplet of water doesn't make a difference. A little bit of dust on the scale isn't gonna make a difference. And that is how God says all the nations of the world are to him. They are like less than nothing, emptiness. <laughs> if I can take a break for just a second, this is, this is a separate thing, but Guys, when we, when we hear about a new threat in our world that we're supposed to be worried about, and this happens a lot, especially these days, there's a lot to be concerned with. What Isaiah is saying is really, we've got nothing to be afraid of, nothing. Pay attention to those threats, understand them, work to fix them if it's something that needs to be fixed, but don't fear them. God's got this, every, every threat, that seems so big. And, and we see a lot of, I've seen these headlines a lot, the biggest threat to the gospel, the biggest threat to the church. All of these things are going out the window. They don't matter. They will be gone. God's saying, it's less than nothing to me. I don't have to work around the things that are coming up. They're not derailing my plans. I'm not freaked out about it. You don't have to protect me on this. I've got this, don't be afraid. He says it's passing, it's like a passing fad. And he, he's not, I'm not saying this to get us fired up, okay? I'm not saying that so that we go out with a, what I call the mistrunchable mindset, which is, you know, I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong. That we don't need that mindset out there, okay? Why I'm saying this is actually so we can go and do the opposite. I'm saying that so that we go out with a spirit of gentleness, the way that Jesus did. And we go in and we enter into these, these areas and we go in without fear. And that means that we don't have to be right and then be wrong. We come in with humility and grace and compassion, knowing our God's gonna take care of it and working to fix things as best we can now, but trusting him with that process. So that's at least part of what Isaiah is saying here. The nations have nothing on God. Does that mean God doesn't care about them? Does that mean they're worthless to him? No. That's not at all what it means. Ray Orland, uh, if, we've, if you've noticed we've referenced Ray Orland a lot in the sermon series, is because he literally, literally wrote the book on Isaiah. So he's very, very helpful on this. Uh, and he puts it in ways, I don't know about you, Nathan, but he puts it in ways that a, a dummy like me can understand, and that's very, very helpful for me. So Ray says it like this. One drop doesn't matter. 
And so it is with God's deployment of the nations in his plan for history. He does not despise the nations, he loves them. They are not worthless, but they derive their worth from him alone. Sadly, the nations are blind to God's glory, pursuing their own self-exaltation and resisting his kingdom. But this isn't a problem that God has to work around somehow. It doesn't matter. As God governs his world, he has no problems. So the world and everything in it is, is precious to God. He loves them immensely, but it's not because they're just so wildly impressive. If we were putting together a kickball team and God was picking his team, he's not looking at anyone in the line and going, gotta have them. Cannot win this game without them. And if they're on the other team, gonna be a big problem for me. Definitely gotta have them around. God's not doing things that way. And I mean, what else could we expect really? I personally, I cannot touch rim on a basketball goal. What do I have on God? How am I ever going to come to God and say, I've got something you need, God? No, it doesn't work that way. Or check this out. Isaiah explains this by zeroing in on one nation in particular. He says, look at Lebanon. Lebanon was famous for these, these massive cedar trees, just these huge trees. And Isaiah says, okay, take all the trees in Lebanon, chop them all down, put them all in a big fire. Take all the animals in Lebanon, put them on the fire. Is that, is that even big enough to arrest God's attention? Is that worship worthy of God? Is that going to make God look down and just go, now that, that is worship right there. I got to have those people around. It's not. No. Not even that, Isaiah says, would be worthy of God. Not even that could call his attention and say, look at me, pay attention to this. So how much less me on my own am I going to do that? I, over Christmas, uh, you know, it was Christmas in 2020 and I was home alone. So I was bored. And the only thing that you should do in that situation is what I did. I bought a cello. Do I know how to play the cello? No, sure don't. But I bought a cello, and I bought a beginner's book, and I practiced a few songs, and then I faced on my parents one night. And I was playing, I don't know, Old MacDonald or something like that. It was not good. It didn't sound good, but they loved it. They were laughing, not at me. They were laughing out of joy with me, and they thought it was great. It sounded terrible. It was scratchy. I didn't know how to play. Everything was out of tune. I'm off beat. I'm having to go back and reset myself over and over again. I've not gotten any better since then. Why, why did my parents find that so enjoyable? Well, because they love me. Not because it was impressive. Not because it called attention to itself or anything like that. It was old McDonald. To God, Isaiah is saying, everything in this world is no better, no more impressive than my scratchy cello version of old McDonald. That's how impressive this is to him. If there's any value in this world, God put it there. If there's any value in us, wonderfully, gratefully, guys, it's because of the God we belong to. That is where it comes from. So do you see, are you starting to catch what Isaiah is doing here? He's emboldening his people. He's giving them their backbone back. He's pointing to the difficulty of their situation, to their longing and their aching, to their searching for answers. And he's saying, guys, what here is going to stop God from doing what he said? What here is going to keep him from helping you? His word, no matter how real the threats of this world feel, no matter how close they seem, his word is more sure and stable and real than anything we walk into. So what then? This is what Judah had to be asking. If this is our God, if Isaiah is saying this is who he really is, 
what have we been following? What has led to our, you know, bunker down, maintain, weighted out mentality? What has led to our bland, monotonous, wooden experience of God? Look at verse 18. Isaiah tells us, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. He casts for it silver chains. He's too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Again, I love how Ray looks at this. He points out that Isaiah, Isaiah's really not trying to talk bad about idols here. He's not, uh, you know, as the youth say, he's not flaming the idol manufacturing community, okay? All he's doing is he's describing it. This, this could be an entry on Wikipedia. This is just a statement about what's happening. He says, oh, an idol. Come on, grab a piece of stone, maybe a piece of wood, dress it up in gold, put some silver on it, find the best craftsman you possibly can in the entire world, let him do it for you. And at the end of the day, it's just a piece of rock. It's just a piece of wood. It's not gonna move. It can't do anything. And it's, it's so pointless, Isaiah feels, that he only gives two sentences to this whole subject. He thinks it is not even worth his breath to continue talking about idols because it's just so silly and pointless. But the little space he gives, I don't want us to think it's a reflection of how small this is for us. It's actually massive. This was a very real conversation for Judah, and it is for us too. A.W. Tozer talked about idolatry like this. He said, let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only of kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people like us are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. We are all the time trying to reduce the sheer size of God into bite-sized pieces. Because we think, I think, if I can just figure out God, if I can figure out what makes him tick, then I can really get this life thing going. I can really do this. We imagine that we want God, but we want him contained and tame, there to help us when we need it. And Isaiah's point is, what good is that? What good is that? that that's not the kind of God that's going to get you fired up in the morning. That's not the kind of God that's going to embolden you to take on the worst this world has to offer with humility and grace. That's not the kind of God that's going to make promises that straighten your back up and lift your head up and give you dignity again. That's not the kind of God that can even move. How is he going to hold us up? That's not the kind of God that can speak. How is he going to change us? That's not the God we need, and that's not the God we have. It's not the God we have. Verses 21, look at this. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rules of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their skin stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. 
and they wither. And, they temp- and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about the stars there. What describes the God we picture more? Barely mobile, well-intentioned, but a little lacking, giving us nice things to aim for, but nothing, you know, effectual for us here and now? Do we picture him, I don't know, as as cold and aloof, as playing favorites and like, I just don't ever seem to be the favorite? Or are we starting to see God as he really is? Do we see him as wonderfully beyond our faintest imagination? Do we see his cosmic cosmic size wisdom and strength that is literally binding creation into existence. The atoms of your body held together meticulously by God. Do we, do we see, have we gotten a scale of things that even when I feel small and scared next to the immensity of this world, do we have a God who is bigger than the world? It is small next to him. I might be small, it is smaller. Can we accept that the very best we have to offer God will never be impressive, but that's not what it's about. It's about what he would do for us, what he offers us. Have we grasped that God, big as he is, powerful as he is, as massive as he is, has looked out, has looked out on all creation, out of everything. And he singled out you and he singled out me and made good promises to us. Promises that he put a down payment on in his son. He proved them. Can we believe in that God? The answer matters, friends. The answer matters for you and for me. You know, this isn't, this isn't just pie-in-the-sky religious talk, okay? This is me taking off the preacher hat for a second, all right? This is, this is me, Evan, okay? Fellow sinner and struggler and God-shrinker. There is nothing else that matters because when the chips are down, and everyone and everything seems to have left us. Where will we go in that moment? Where will we go? When we're feeling with Judah, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. That's when we're at the bedrock of who we are. That's our deepest fear and our darkest thoughts about God put to words. What if God loses me? What if he gets tired of me? What if there comes a day, however far out it might be, when God just doesn't have the energy to love me anymore? What do I do when God can't keep track of me? And that's, that's real. If you, if you haven't been there, you probably will. And if you have and you feel like you're the only one who's been there, you're not. You know, I, I have been there. There was a season in my life, in ministry of all things, where I didn't really know if I believed anymore. I was struggling to really figure out, do I buy this? And every week, every Sunday, every Wednesday, I stood up in front of students and I would tell them, trust the Lord, pray to God, read your Bible. And inside I'm going, do I believe this? Is this for real? Because God just seemed so distant. And I felt like God had lost track of me. 
And for months it went on like this. You know, me seeking God, praying, going to church, praying, reading my Bible, praying, trying to find him, praying, seeking him as best I could and feeling like I was getting nowhere. And then one night sitting at the back of a car at two in the morning, driving back, I'm trying to write a lesson I'm supposed to give to students that week and I've got nothing, just nothing, no words. And all I could do was write a little prayer in my journal and it just said, God, what is happening? I need you, where are you? So, you know, the day came when I was supposed to give my talk and I hadn't written anything. I still didn't have any words to give. And I did the only thing I knew to do. I tried my best, didn't do well, but tried my best to memorize a passage of scripture. And I just said, I'm just gonna say this. And God, I'm gonna see what you'll do. And I'll see how you work through your word. And you know, that was the moment where God started to do something new. He started to turn things around and he started to renew my strength. He started to give me hope again. A couple weeks later, we went on a, a, a trip to the beach and it was uh, for our camp with our church and I heard the gospel spoken like I hadn't in years. And it just soaked down into my soul. And then a few weeks later, we were on a mission trip in Chicago and I'm watching the Lord work in these little brothers and sisters of mine and being encouraged by this. And I do not know why this is the moment that stands out to me most, but this was a moment I knew things had changed. I'm sitting in the morning doing my quiet time, reading my Bible, still trying to find the Lord and seek him in this. And a student comes down who I suspect had been going through a really similar time in his life of struggling to believe. He comes and he sits across from me and he opens his Bible and he starts reading as well. And I do not know why that moment was the one, but that was it where I thought to myself, this is God at work. This is banking on God's promises. The best I can do and seeing him give hope back to people who need it and strength back to those people who need it. This is God at work. I don't know why God let me go through that season. I have a hunch that if I asked him, he would say it so that I learned to stop trusting in me my strength, to be a little less impressed with me and start learning how to lean into his strength more. I do know this. In the moment, I couldn't imagine God was there. He had not lost track of me because that's not who he is. And as I waited on him, as I did the only things I knew to do, the most basic things in the world, reading my Bible and praying and going to church and seeking things that seemed so pointless at the time, as I tried in my own faltering way to follow him, he worked. Not because I did so good, I didn't. Not because I was holding on so tightly to him, because he is holding on so tirelessly, restlessly to us. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This, this doesn't mean God giving you and I strength to try harder at cleaning ourselves up. This doesn't even mean God giving us the ability to keep running after our goals. 
Those are good things. Maybe God will let it entail parts of that. That's great. But if that's what we're picturing, God is saying to us in Isaiah, think bigger. Think bigger. What God is promising here is nothing less than his own endless supply of strength so completely swallowing us up that we can go out radiating in confidence that gives people a peek into another reality altogether. What we're hearing, what we're talking about, our promises so supercharged with power that they make the impossible happen. How does someone who's faint get strength? They don't. It is the impossible God's doing. We're talking about a God outside the bounds of our understanding, promising a total overhaul of reality as we know it. Words like reconciliation, words like redemption, words like restoration. What Isaiah is saying is God wants to do those things, but that that overhaul comes through ordinary, everyday people like you and me. There's a quote I love. It says that the the way of the Christian life is most often the slow plotting of seemingly meaningless things. They don't seem important, but they're massive. How do we get there? Right? That sounds great. How do we get there? How does a person live like that? Isaiah tells us, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Waiting is not sitting on our hands until God plops good things in our lap. Waiting is not giving lip service to faith and then, you know, going out and getting things done ourselves. Here's what waiting is. To wait for the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. This waiting is not killing time. It isn't sitting around drumming your fingers. It is waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing, It is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing on toward the goal. It isn't erratic bursts of hyperactivity within a general pattern of boredom. It is steady, rugged progress sustained by the conviction that the display of God's glory in Christ is yours. God right now is ready to put his glory in Christ on display in your life, where you are, stressed, Anxious, past your prime, too young, too much on your plate, too much going on, too many distractions. What would God do with this? You. He won't do it through your superhero efforts, but through a whole life shift, deliberately made, away from you know, the chump change glory this world offers and the overwhelming glory promised to us in Christ. And it'll get to work right where you are. Here's what this is going to look like. It's going to look like you'll start to be humbled in the security of God's promises in Christ Jesus. So much so that you look at God and you say, my goodness, I want to know that guy more. I want to be like him more. And as you try and fail, you'll find out he's still there. And you'll fall deeper into confidence that he's a man of his word. You'll start to find the things that used to hinder you, the difficulty of life, being afraid of what people think, missing out on, you know, the best life has to offer, we think. Your dreams, your plans, they matter less. They're still there, but they don't seem so important anymore. At the same time, you'll have this newfound ability to do things the Jesus way. It won't be just failing anymore. It'll also be succeeding and learning how to do things Jesus's way. And it'll just seep into you over time. And as you do, you'll start to hunger for it even more. 
You'll want that more. Slowly, slowly, you'll move beyond, you know, my enjoyment of this new kind of life, and you'll start to think, I want other people to see how good this God is. I want them to know about this. And so a longing for people to see him, a longing for the world to look like him, that'll start to dig into you. And then one day, it'll seem like it just happened all of a sudden. You're going to look up one day and you're going to go, I am not the same person I was. I don't do the same things I did. I don't orient my life around the same things I used to. And I like that. And it's going to seem like it happened just in a day that all of a sudden you wanted Christ and nothing but Christ and that was everything that you had in front of you. But it didn't happen in just a day. It was day after day, moment after moment, banking on the promises of God, seeing him bigger, believing him more than whatever this is around you saying things. You believe him more than that. And every moment you do that is slowly working these things into you. So when you count the promises is more important than anything else and you learn that they really are. God's ready to work in us, church. You as individuals, us as a church. And it starts now. So the worship band's gonna come up and they're going to uh, lead us in another song. Nathan and I are gonna be down front here. I don't know where you're at in life, so I can't tell you what it looks like how big God is in your eyes right now or what he appears to be. But I do know that this is a moment when we get to decide together, I want to bank on the promises more than anything else because it's sweet to trust. So if that decision for you uh, entails talking to somebody, Nathan and I would love to talk to you. If you've never become a Christian, you're thinking, I want to give this thing a try for real now. Come talk to us. If, you, if that next step looks like becoming a part of our church, wonderful. We want to talk to you about that. These seemingly small things are not small. These are massive. And now's the moment for them. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you are bigger than we can imagine. You're bigger than we think. May you work in this moment in ways that only you can. And may you, God, may you start something today that Woodmont would be a place that radiates confidence in Christ, that gives a peek into another world altogether. And that people would be drawn into that, Lord, for no other reason than you're here and you're good. We ask this in Jesus' name.